Talking Head, The Covid Diaries, written and performed by Tim Browse. Jemima called me into the sitting room yesterday afternoon, saying that Boris Johnson was on the television. I said there wasn't much I could do about that, and had she thought about changing the channel. She told me to stop trying to be funny, and just turned up the volume. The first step to easing lockdown, Boris was saying, was for everyone to get back to work, unless they could work from home, or if they didn't want to, or, presumably, if they no longer had a job to return to. When travelling to work, he said, people should avoid using public transport, unless, of course, they really had to. And then, Boris asked, would it be okay for you not to sit next to anyone, or better still, sit on the top deck and stick your head out of the window? Above all, Boris said, people should get back to work, unless they couldn't, before finally saying that we could all now go outside for more than one hour, but please don't. Jemima said that she was finding this all rather confusing, so she was off for a lie down. Later on, as I was doing the washing up, Jemima asked me what else the Prime Minister had said. I said that he had mentioned something about primary schools reopening from June the 1st. I thought schools were already open, Jemima said. I said I thought they were too, but the Prime Minister hadn't mentioned this during his address, so maybe it was all just a figment of my imagination. What else did he say about schools, Jemima asked, as she squirted more washing up liquid into the sink. I told her that I wasn't entirely sure what else the Prime Minister had said, as by that point I'd been too busy breathing into a brown paper bag to hear what he was saying. Jemima patted me on the back and handed me a tea towel, telling me not to dwell on it all evening, otherwise the drying up would never get done. To help take my mind off it, I turned on the radio to find that the local radio station was in the middle of conducting a phone-in. Apparently, the topic of conversation was why a teacher's a bunch of lazy, good-for-nothing bastards. One caller felt it was so unfair that teachers were still getting paid, when it was parents who were now doing all the teaching, that she'd stopped her children from doing any home learning as a form of protest. Another caller was so incensed that his school hadn't allowed his children to attend school during lockdown, he was going to refuse to send them back once they reopened out of spite. I didn't get to finish listening to the next caller, who was suggesting that teachers were part of a Covid conspiracy designed purely to extend their summer holiday, as Jemima was calling through to the kitchen telling me to stop shouting. I turned off the radio and decided that the best way to switch off would be to go to bed and think about it all night. Before I had even stepped foot in my office this morning, Mrs Wrangle called out to say that Mr Stevens, our year six teacher in the school's union rep, was on the phone. I asked her what he wanted, and she said that he wanted to talk to me about the union's objections to our safety plan for more children attending school. I told Mrs Wrangle to take a message, and, while she was at it, to tell Mr Stevens that I objected to the union's objections, especially as at this moment in time, we didn't have a safety plan for them to object to. I walked into my office, where Sean and Gavin were waiting for me. They said we needed an emergency meeting to develop our safety plan for more children attending school. I took off my coat, pointing out that, considering we had about two weeks to sort things out, I didn't think any meeting we had today warranted emergency status. Sean asked if the local authority had provided schools with a risk assessment to help plan the wider reopening of schools. I laughed and said, didn't you hear me, Sean? I said we have about a fortnight to sort this out. That means we won't hear anything from the local authority until about a month on Tuesday. Gavin said the Director of Education had just invited all head teachers to a virtual meeting to discuss the challenges facing schools reopening. Oh, I say, I don't think I received that email. Gavin said that if I had bothered to link my school emails to my personal account, then maybe I wouldn't miss out on important information. Yes, thank you, Gavin, I say, but I can actually access my work emails at home, thank you very much. 
I just choose not to. Shan sat down and said that parents were already contacting the school to ask what was going on after the Prime Minister had announced that all children in Year 6, Year 1 and reception would be coming back to school after half term. Shan said they wanted to know if I would be putting out a statement before the end of the day. I pointed out that I tended not to announce things publicly before I knew what was going on on account of me not being a government minister. Shan persisted and said that telling parents the order of returning year groups was the least we could do. Well, I said, we don't want reception back first because that's just mad. I mean, asking a group of five-year-olds to socially distance is like asking a busload of pensioners to stay away from your Werther's Originals. Totally impossible and you're likely to get licked in the process. Shan said that she thought we should prioritise the Year 6 children. She said they needed a proper end to their primary career and seeing as they'd already missed out on Year 6 camp, wouldn't be putting on an end-of-year production or even attending a graduation disco, getting them back together before the summer was the least we could do. That's right, I said, and the fact that most of them couldn't wait to leave this place before lockdown even started should also mean that hardly any of them will turn up. So, despite my initial reservations, I did end up writing to the parents, informing them of our plan for reintroducing more children back to school. First, we would get the Year 6 children back, followed by Year 1, and then finally, God help us, we would welcome back our reception children. This, I said, was a sensible way forward that would allow us to gradually test the school's operational safety as we welcome more of our beloved pupils back through the school gates. When I got home that evening, Sean rang me to see if I'd read the latest government guidance on the reopening of schools. Of course I have, Sean, I say. You were there when I read it this afternoon. That was the old guidance, she says. The new guidance was published five minutes ago. I tell Sean not to worry, and they've probably just updated it to correct a couple of typos or something. But Sean interrupts, saying it's more serious than that. It says that schools must prioritise getting their youngest children back to school first. Sean says that she's livid, and she feels this new guidance flies in the face of safety, which is highly concerning. It's worse than that, Sean, I say. It flies in the face of what we've already told parents, which is just bloody annoying. Sean says that I will have to write to parents to let them know the change in plan. I tell her I've got the local director's meeting tomorrow morning, but that I'll write to the parents as soon as I'm done. Sean says that she'd feel much happier if I wrote the letter now. Oh, would you, I say. Yes, she says, so she can switch off and enjoy her evening. I was just about to ask Sean what about my evening, when Jemima called out to tell me that it's nearly time for our weekly neighbourhood Zoom quiz. All right, Sean, I say, if it will help you enjoy your evening, I'll start writing the letter now. The director began his virtual meeting this morning by checking that we'd all read the updated government guidance. A private message pops up on my screen from Steve Templeton. He wants to know if I've read the new guidance or would I like him to send me a copy. This is followed by a winking emoji with its tongue sticking out. I reply saying that, actually Steve, I read it as soon as it was published last night. I try sending an emoji of a middle finger but end up sending him a unicorn instead. Steve replies, saying that that was the old guidance, and that the updated guidance was sent to schools five minutes ago. I heard the director stop whatever he was saying and ask if I was all right. I looked up and saw that he was leaning into the camera and staring right at me. As I was on mute, I just smiled, nodded my head and gave him the thumbs up. Good, he said. I thought you were having a stroke there for a minute. He then carried on, saying that the local authority was committed to supporting schools with their plans for reopening and that they would be doing everything in their power to help keep schools safe. The best way for the local authority to do this, he continued, was to stay out of it and allow schools to do whatever they thought was best. 
Steve Templeton wrote a message on the group chat board saying that it was great that the local authority was choosing to trust schools during this very dynamic situation. This was then followed by every other head adding pearls of wisdom such as absolutely and it's so dynamic out there. One head even said that they were sending the director a virtual hug. I did my best not to be virtually sick in my lap. The director did say that the local authority would be sending out a risk assessment for all schools to complete to prove that they were COVID compliant. I raised my hand to ask a question and the director unmuted me. Sorry, director, I said, but when you say COVID compliant, what does that actually mean? The director smiled and said that this was a great question and that it simply meant that schools had done everything they could to ensure that they were COVID compliant. I said, yes, I got that bit. I was more wondering what being COVID compliant actually meant. The director said that this was another great question and that once all the risk assessments had been completed and returned to the local authority, he would be in a better position to decide what being COVID compliant meant. Right, I said. It's just that how can schools plan to be COVID compliant if we don't actually know right now what COVID compliant really means? But the director had put me back on mute and was busy asking if there were any other questions. Turns out the city's head teachers did have a few more questions. Some wanted to know what font the risk assessment should be written in. Others wanted to know how many pages it should be. One head wanted to know if anyone knew how to convert a PDF to a Word document. And Steve Templeton asked if it was okay to use another school's risk assessment and just change the name of the school at the top. These, the director said, were all great questions and proof that our city's children were in the safest of hands. He then said that we were running out of time, but he just wanted to remind us that even though we were obliged to include the unions in our risk assessment process, if we didn't get round to doing that, then, wink wink, no harm done. I logged off the meeting, put my head in my hands, and waited for the risk assessment to arrive. Once the risk assessment had arrived, I sat down with my senior leadership team and we began to look through it, trying to cross-reference it with the government guidance. Sean said that the first thing we had to do was to consider how to manage the returning children. They would, she said, need to be placed into a new set of class bubbles. Sorry, what? I said. Bubbles, she said. Small groups of no more than 15 children per class. Right, I said, and why can't we just call these small groups groups? Sean sighed and said because if we didn't call them bubbles, then we couldn't fill in the box on the risk assessment about bubble integrity. Having no idea what bubble integrity was supposed to mean, I opted to sit back in my chair and allow Sean to carry on. Each bubble should contain no more than 15 children per classroom, she said, and all persons within the bubble should remain at a two-metre distance from everybody else. Ah, I said, I see now why they wanted to start with reception. Sean said that she didn't think my sarcasm was helping before continuing to say that school bubbles shouldn't mix and that we must take all the precautions necessary to ensure that this is possible. Sorry, Sean, I said, but how many bubbles do you think we're going to have once all these children are back in school? She thought about it and said that we could have up to 12 bubbles, but that I shouldn't forget about the five key worker bubbles we already had in attendance. Right, I said, so if each of these bubbles needs their own classroom, that means we need 17 classrooms in order to maintain bubble integrity. Potentially, yes, she said, taking care to write that number into the risk assessment. Gavin piped up to say that this could be a problem on account of the school only having 14 classrooms, but that maybe we could look at turning the disabled toilet into a classroom if that would help. Sean said that sadly this wasn't an option, as the disabled toilet was already marked on the risk assessment as being our staff COVID wellbeing centre. 
Well, this is going splendidly, I said. Mrs Wrangle, I called out, could you get the director on the phone and tell him we require three new classrooms in order to be Covid compliant? Shan said that now she was thinking about it, staffing itself may also be an issue, as another way of maintaining bubble integrity was to ensure that staff don't cross bubbles. I pointed out that this should be easy enough, as we didn't have 17 full-time teachers in the first place. Shan looked at me and said that we may end up having to teach one of the bubbles. I fixed her with a hard stare and said that we should do everything in our power to make sure that that never happened. Shan got up, saying she would look at developing a staggered timetable with the children coming into school on a rotor system to see if that helped. After she left, Gavin said that he wanted to talk to me about cleaning. I put my head on my desk and asked if we really had to. He nodded, saying that it was very important. I sighed and in a last bit of desperation shouted out to Mrs Wrangle. She came in, saying that she hadn't got through to the director yet to tell him about the extra classrooms. Never mind that, Mrs Wrangle, I said. Are there any messages for me? No, she said. No phone calls from Steve Templeton? Mrs Wrangle shook her head. Well, what about Miss Pringle, I said. Surely she's rung up to say that she needs some urgent help with Frankie Wallace? No, sorry, Mrs Wrangle said. Although Mr Stevens has left another message for you, he still wants to talk about the union's objections to reopening schools. Yes, well, I'd love to talk to Mr Stevens, Mrs Wrangle, I said, but I'm in the middle of a very important meeting with Gavin here about the school's cleaning schedule. After Mrs Wrangle had left, Gavin said that the key to Covid compliance was a robust cleaning schedule. His plan was to appoint enough new cleaners so that each bubble would have their own personal cleaner, who would patrol the classroom and immediately disinfect any surface or object once somebody had touched it. They would, he said, be supplied with a full suit of PPE and be expected to disinfect themselves every 30 minutes by sitting in a sink full of bleach. I asked Gavin if he was feeling OK or whether the stress of lockdown had finally got to him, but he said it was fine and that the government had just announced that they would be refunding schools any additional cleaning costs brought about by Covid. Just then, Sean came in and said that she had cracked it, as long as each bubble attended school on a rotor, two days a week, with Wednesday identified as a deep clean day, then according to Sean, we could manage to maintain bubble integrity whilst limiting the number of classrooms we used. It wasn't perfect, she said. One bubble would need to arrive at school at half past six in the morning, whilst another wouldn't get picked up until 8pm, but it did mean that we could tick the bubble integrity box on the risk assessment. Sean did say, though, that she hadn't quite got round to solving the problem of the school not having enough teachers. I told Sean not to worry, as it was highly unlikely that every parent would be sending their child back to school, so we could probably manage with the teachers we had. Sean said that she felt this was an unnecessary gamble, and what would we do if I was wrong? Well, I said, turning to face Gavin, if I'm wrong, we just get Gavin here to recruit a few extra cleaners at the government's expense. Sean frowned, saying that she didn't think some parents would be happy sending their child back to school, only to have them taught by a cleaner. I pointed out that they wouldn't know, as the cleaner would be covered from head to toe in PPE, we could just tell them it was a teacher with an underlying health condition, I said. Sean said that she really wasn't sure about that, but if it meant being able to finish the risk assessment, she was willing to give it a go. Later, I got home and Jemima said that Sean had just called with a message to check my emails. I got out my phone and saw that the government had just issued a new updated guidance for schools document. The guidance was now saying that children returning to school should not be asked to attend the Narota system, but should be able to return to school full time. Jemima asked if everything was all right. Oh, fine, darling, I said. Just another day that turns out to be a monumental waste of my time. Jemima said that she was relieved as she thought for a minute something unusual had happened. Before I drove to school this morning, I checked my emails, 
just to make sure that the government hadn't updated their own guidance again overnight. I noticed that Mr Stevens had emailed me again requesting a union meeting and, thinking that I probably couldn't put it off any longer, I replied saying that he could Zoom me this afternoon. I also checked Twitter, only to find that Ryan Bottom was busy telling everyone that he was thinking of fully reopening his school on June the 1st to prove that he was more ambitious than the Prime Minister. I thought about replying saying that he certainly sounded more stupid than the Prime Minister, but noticing that Sean had liked his tweet and replied with hashtag brave leadership, I thought better of it. When I arrived at school, Mrs Wrangle said that Steve Templeton was on the phone. I asked her why hadn't she told him I wasn't in like we had agreed. She said that she couldn't keep up with who I never wanted to speak to on the phone. Well, as I said before, Mrs Wrangle, if in doubt, don't put anyone through. She asked what I wanted her to do, and I sighed and said put him through, but come and get me in one minute and say there's an emergency. Steve said he was ringing to find out what I thought about the latest government guidance. I said that after I'd read it last night, I came to the conclusion that the government was doing everything in its power to prevent schools from opening, but in a way that made it look like it was all our fault. Steve said that he meant the guidance that had come through five minutes ago. Yes, very funny, Steve, I said, but he told me to check my email, and, sure enough, there it was, sitting in my inbox like a fresh turd. The government guidance for the reopening of schools, version 138. Just as I was using a rather abusive collective noun to describe the Department for Education, Mrs Wrangle came in to say there was an emergency that needed my attention. Apparently, Frankie Wallace had glued Miss Pringle's face visor to his bottom and nobody could get near him to pull it off. After I'd apologised and said goodbye to Steve, I thanked Mrs Wrangle for her timely intervention and congratulated her on the level of her invention. She said she didn't know what I meant and that Frankie Wallace was currently sat outside my office with Miss Pringle's face visor firmly attached to his rear end. Two hours later, and I'm stuck in a Zoom meeting with the school union rep discussing the risk assessment. First things first, Mr Stevens says to me, you're doing a brilliant job. Oh, that's very kind of you, I start to say, before realising he hadn't finished. I mean, that's what everyone is telling me anyway. Oh, that's right, I say, I forgot you haven't actually been in school for two and a half months. He nods his head and tells me how tough it's been. Yes, it looked like you were having a tough time from what I could gather on your Instagram account, I said. Mr Stevens said that it has been really important for his mental health during this difficult time to keep active. I agreed, saying that I wasn't sure I would manage to come to work every day either if I was being as active as him. He then said that he didn't blame me for not being able to make the school safe and that it was all the bloody government's fault, but that he couldn't support a return to school until there was a vaccine. Right, I said, and if I can't rustle up a vaccine in the next two weeks, what measures would you want to see in place? Mr Stevens then reeled off a string of safety measures, including reduced class sizes, robust cleaning routines and the use of PPE equipment for vulnerable staff. I asked Mr Stevens if he's actually read the draft risk assessment I sent him this morning, and he shakes his head, saying that what with now being allowed to go outside for more than one hour at a time, he hasn't got round to it. Right, I say, well if you had bothered to read it, you would find that all of those safety measures you just read off the union checklist are all firmly in place. So, if it's okay with you, Mr Stevens, I'll let Sean know that she can add you to the staffing structure as of next week. Mr Stevens started to say there must be something wrong with his bandwidth, as he was having trouble hearing me. I told him not to worry, and that I would be following this meeting up in writing, but before I'd finished he'd zoomed off, leaving me all alone ranting at a video screen of myself. Before I set off to work this morning, I double-checked my emails to see if there had been any updated guidance from the government that would scupper my plans to finally get my risk assessment sent off to the local authority. My inbox was mercifully light, 
just the usual spam from companies hell-bent on selling me cheap hand sanitizer and social distancing cattle prods. But more importantly, no new guidance. So imagine my surprise when I arrived at work to find Sean in the main office feeding our latest risk assessment into the shredder. When I asked her what she was doing, she said that we had just received the latest government update five minutes ago and that our risk assessment was now out of date. Repressing the urge to scream and kick the photocopier, I asked where Gavin was. She said that he was in the playground organising a bonfire of all our soft furnishings and soft toys, as the new guidance stated very clearly that any such items were not conducive to Covid compliance. Sean then said that before we could submit any risk assessment, we now needed to review each bubble's curriculum. Apparently, children could no longer take part in any PE lesson that may result in a child panting, art lessons mustn't involve the use of any resources beyond their allocated pencil, all ICT lessons must be adapted to reduce the handling of technology, and singing, said Sean, was now strictly prohibited. Oh, I said, does that also mean we have to ban recorders? Sean said that she hadn't read anything about recorders in the guidance, to which I replied, no, but it would seem a shame to look a gift horse in the mouth. Sean then said she'd heard a rumour that the next guidance update was coming out this evening, so we'd need to act pretty quickly if we were going to submit our risk assessment before the end of the day. I said that I would just ring the fire brigade and tell them not to worry about the vast plumes of smoke that were now rising up from the playground, and that then we could crack on. As I made my way to my office, I saw Akram standing outside my door and wearing a mask. I asked him what he wanted and why he was wearing one, particularly one that said keep calm and don't breathe. Akram said that his mum had told him that now loads of other kids were coming back to school, he had to wear a mask. Well, Akram, I said, you can tell your mum that children your age don't need to wear a mask. The guidance is very clear about that. Akram asked if it was against the law for him to wear a mask. No, Akram, I said, it's just guidance. But, sir, if it's just guidance, he said, you don't have to follow it, in it. I was just about to tell him to stop being so pedantic when a thought struck me. I called out to Sean and told her to stop shredding the most recent risk assessment and come into my office. Then I told Akram to return to class and that if he wanted to wear a mask, he could but only on the condition that he carried on breathing. Sean came into my office and asked me what was up. Sean, I said, what does the government guidance say about schools actually having to follow the guidance? She went to the printer and printed off the very latest guidance document and started flicking through it. It says here, she said, that the following guidance is intended to support schools' own decision-making process and that schools are not required to use this guide. Right, I said, so if we wanted to, we could just ignore it. Well, it does say, said Sean, looking closely at the small print, that it's a planning tool. Well, it's certainly been written by a tool, I said, some sadistic little pencil pusher from the Department of Education who has probably written it from the comfort of their own home while still wearing their pyjamas. It certainly has not been written by anyone who has ever come close to working in a school. So what's your point, Sean asked. My point, Sean, is that we should ignore it and just send in our risk assessment to the local authority in the knowledge that we have tried our very best. Sean looked at me for a moment before saying that although she didn't entirely agree with my new way of thinking, she did really want to finish the risk assessment before the weekend. At that point, Gavin came in, covered in ash, asking if there was anything else I wanted to add to the bonfire. I took the large volume of guidance from Sean and handed it to him. Only this, Gavin, I said, and then I think we'll finally be able to say that we are fully COVID compliant. You have been listening to Talking Head, The COVID Diaries written and performed by Tim Browse. All characters and events are entirely fictitious and are not based on any real people or events. Any similarities are entirely coincidental and should be taken up with Her Majesty's Government.
more Brained Comedy, visit our website, brainedcomedy.com, and subscribe to our podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcatchers. <laughs>